Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on the 10th day of April 2020. You are tuned into episode 375 of the Corbett Report podcast, Corona World Order. And today on the podcast, We have a relatively simple task. We're going to answer one question that I think has a very obvious answer. The question is, is this coronavirus pandemic freakout scare crisis a boon for the globalists? And I think the answer is quite obviously yes. Because if you have followed my work, you will know that what is happening right now is the culmination of almost everything that I have been talking and writing and warning about for the last 13 years in terms of the centralization of power and control in the hands of a very few oligarchical elitists who are using a technocratic enslavement grid to impose a global worldwide tyranny, aka a new world order. But I find it fascinating that some people, not very many, but some, seem to get the exact opposite message out of the events that are taking place right now. So let's examine this question in a little bit more detail today, and we'll start by taking a look at some of the people who are making the other, uh, the case for the other side of the argument, the idea that this is not a boon for the globalists. And let's start with someone who has been an arch enemy of the globalists and the New World Order, uh, at least from the controlled left-right paradigm side of things. Uh, we're talking about Pat Buchanan, who had an editorial up a few weeks ago that was posted at the American Conservative, Will the Coronavirus Wipe Out the New World Order? In which, uh, somewhere down into the middle of the the op-ed, he writes, What does the future hold? It may one day be said that the coronavirus delivered the death blow to the New World Order, to a half-century of globalization, and to the era of interdependence of the world's great nations. Tourism, air travel, vacation cruises, international gatherings and festivals are already shutting down. Travel bans between countries and continents are being imposed. Conventions, concerts, and sporting events are being cancelled. Will the Tokyo Olympics go forward? If they do, will the anticipated visitors from abroad come to Japan to enjoy the games? Spoiler, no. (laughs) Uh, Trump has issued a one-month travel ban on Europe. Obviously this is outdated, but you get the idea. As for the open borders crowd, do Democrats still believe that breaking into our country should no longer be a crime and that immigrants arriving illegally should be given free health care? A proposition to which all the Democratic debaters raised their hands? And he goes on to make various points citing supply chain insecurities and other things before concluding, Which rings truer today? We are all part of mankind, all citizens of the world? Or that it's time to put America and Americans first? All right, well, I have many things to say about that take, that analysis of the events as they're playing out, or at least as they were playing out a few weeks ago when the crisis was at a very different stage, as you can tell from some of the things he's citing there. But it's important to note that, of course, it's not just Pat Buchanan making this argument. This has been put forward in a number of different venues by a number of different people, like, for example, John Pfeffer, who at Common Dreams was asking, will the coronavirus kill globalization? And after 
some hemming and hawing and back and forth. He uh, does say the coronavirus by itself will not put an end to this most, most recent wave of globalization, but like the flu pandemic of 1918, it could contribute to a trend of greater fragmentation, or by serving as a reminder of how the health of humanity has been mutually dependent across borders for millennia, the latest outbreak could prompt a rethinking of how the world works together. Well, I think that's somewhat slightly closer to the point, i.e., yes, I mean, things, certainly the status quo has been derailed and uh, disrupted, but that doesn't exactly mean that the overarching trend of globalization itself has been undermined. But again, there are other um, pundits, including more or less mainstream pundits that have their hot takes on the idea that globalization is in fact being reversed under this new corona world order. Hello there, I'm Shuli Ghosh. Even before the new coronavirus outbreak, global trade was slowing down and the spread of COVID-19 is making things worse. Denting demand for goods and making production more difficult. Add in protectionist policies and trade wars, and some are arguing that globalization is moving into reverse gear. Yeah, the idea that globalization has been derailed, or even that a death blow has been dealt to the New World Order as a result of this coronavirus disruption is not altogether uncommon. A number of people have come to that conclusion, but I still feel that it is a false conclusion. It is true insofar as it goes, but that doesn't go very far. Yes, there certainly has been a disruption of business as usual. Global trade and what have you has come to a grinding halt, so clearly there are problems with the the world order as it has existed. But of course, that is just the invitation to fill that vacuum in with a new world order. And you better believe that the globalists are going to push a thousand times harder uh, as a result of this disruption to get their agenda items in place. In fact, this is the crisis that they need to justify the response, the solution that they already have up their sleeve. Hey, what is the, what's the problem? Oh, global government, that's the solution. And if you don't believe me, let's just take a look at what the globalists themselves are saying about this crisis. And we can get one example of that from a op-ed piece that was published in Spiegel International by Bernard Zand in the last few weeks called A Global Challenge Needs a Global Response which gives you an idea of the tenor of this article. Let's just skip down to the part uh, where, uh, under the headline, or the subhead, Nobody Will Lead the World Out of Its Current Misery Alone, in which Zand writes, If climate change and the migration tragedies we have witnessed in recent years didn't make it obvious enough, COVID-19 is demonstrating it day in and day out. In crises like this one, some form of global government is needed, as premature and incomplete as it might end up being given the pressures created by the unending slew of bad news. Such crises require communication and cooperation far beyond national borders and even continental shores. Instead, though, we are seeing political and economic spheres of influence moving toward isolation. Nobody will be able to lead the world out of its current misery alone. Not China, which felt a couple of days ago that it was seeing an end to the health crisis, only now to be fearful of the economic waves crashing over the globe. Not the U.S., whose president assured his people just a few days ago that the country was well-prepared and it was now mobilizing hundreds of billions of dollars to ward off the worst of it. And not Europe either, which is closing national borders one country at a time and seems to be forgetting its neighbors. Social distancing is the medical solution to the spread of the virus. But in global politics, we need quite the opposite. 
end quote. And that, I think, is a pretty stark assessment of the situation from the globalists' point of view. Oh yes, di social distancing and keeping people apart is very important at the individual level, keeping individuals from ever coming together, ever forming some sort of groups that can take action together or even assembling or or demonstrating anything of that sort. Of course, the point is to keep people apart at that level. But on the global, international level, this is just going to bring uh, people together even closer, uh, nations and organizations at any rate. So that is the fail-forward take, the fail-forward approach that the globalists are taking to this. The crisis, of course, is just more fodder for the idea that we need a global government. And once again, we can take this straight from the horse's mouth. In this case, of course, the horse being ex-UK uh, Prime Minister Gordon Brown. Yes, the same Gordon Brown who, back during the 2008 financial crisis, used the April 2009 gathering of the G20 in London to call for a new world order to save the Earth. I think a new world order is emerging, and with it the foundations of a new and progressive era of international cooperation. We have resolved that from today, we will together manage the process of globalization to secure responsibility from all and fairness to all. And we've agreed that in doing so, we will build a more sustainable and more open and a fairer global society. Yes, that Gordon Brown. So what is Mr. New World Order to Save the Earth saying about this crisis? Any guesses? Oh, that's right. Well, you can find out for yourself uh, through something like a letter to G20 governments, which I'll include in the show notes, which is co-signed by Gordon Brown and a whole gaggle of globalists that advocates tens of billions of dollars in emergency spending going to international health organizations like the WHO under the, uh, the management of something called the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board, which in case you haven't heard of it, was set up by the UN Secretary General's Global Health Crises Task Force in 2017 and co-convened by the World Health Organization and the World Bank Group in May of 2018. Uh, it's led by, for example, the former WHO Director General and other globalists like uh, Groholm Brundtland, who will be absolutely familiar to people familiar with my big oil story. So... Uh, no surprise there, but in case you need it spelled out in any clearer detail, well, The Guardian made it quite explicit in their coverage of Gordon Brown's comments a couple of weeks ago where they had the article, Gordon Brown calls for global government to tackle coronavirus. Surprise, surprise. Where they note, Gordon Brown has urged world leaders to create a temporary, <laughs> temporary form of global government to tackle the twin medical and economic crises caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. The former Labour Prime Minister, who was at the centre of the international efforts to tackle the impact of near meltdown of the banks in 2008, said there was a need for a task force involving world leaders, health experts, and the heads of the international organisations that would have executive powers to coordinate the response. This is not something that can be dealt with in one country, he said. There has to be a coordinated global response. Brown said the current crisis was different to the one he was involved in. That was an economic problem that had economic causes and had an economic solution. This is first and foremost a medical emergency, and there has to be joint action to deal with that. But the more you intervene to deal with the medical emergency, the more you put economies at risk. All right, so Gordon Brown quite 
clearly connecting some more of the puzzle pieces together to show how this is creating the New World Order picture that I've been painting here on the Corporate Report for 13 years, how this medical emergency was brings with it an economic emergency that was going to need to be dealt with too. And the only way to do that is through a temporary form of global government that's going to just temporarily put all sorts of extraordinary powers in the hands of these international bodies that will have to be strengthened as a result of this. And just temporary, you know, until we can eradicate all disease and all threat of all pandemic from ever affecting humankind again. You know, just, just until that takes place, right? So you're starting to see how these puzzle pieces fit together, but let, let's, let's put it all together. Let's take this from the arch-globalist himself, Mr. New World Order, Henry Kissinger, who wrote, as I'm sure you've seen by now, an op-ed recently, the coronavirus pandemic will forever alter the world order. And I will refrain from quoting this in the Henry Kissinger voice, but uh, you can read along in your head uh, in that voice if you so desire. Heinz Kissinger wrote thusly, quote, the surreal atmosphere of the COVID-19 pandemic calls to mind how I felt as a young man in the 84th Infantry Division during the Battle of the Bulge. Now, as in late 1944, there is a sense of inchoate danger, aimed not at any particular person, but striking randomly and with devastation. But there is an important difference between that faraway time and ours. American endurance, then, was fortified by an ultimate national purpose. Now, in a divided country, Efficient and far-sighted government is necessary to overcome obstacles unprecedented in magnitude and global scope. Sustaining the public trust is crucial to social solidarity, to the relation of societies with each other, and to international peace and stability. Nations cohere and flourish on the belief that their institutions can foresee calamity, arrest its impact, and restore stability. When the COVID-19 pandemic is over, many countries' institutions will be perceived as having failed. Whether this judgment is objectively fair is irrelevant. The reality is the world will never be the same after the coronavirus. To argue now about the past only makes it harder to do what has to be done. Leaders are dealing with the crisis on a largely national basis, but the virus's society-dissolving effects do not recognize borders. While the assault on human health will, hopefully, be temporary, the political and economic upheaval it has unleashed could last for generations. No country, not even the US, can in a purely national effort overcome the virus. Addressing the necessities of the moment must ultimately be coupled with a global collaborative vision and program. If we cannot do both in tandem, we will face the worst of each. Drawing lessons from the development of the Marshall Plan and the Manhattan Project, the U.S. is obliged to undertake a major effort in three domains. First, shore up global resilience to infectious disease. Triumphs of medical science like the polio vaccine and the eradication of smallpox, or the emerging statistical-technical marvel of medical diagnosis through artificial intelligence, have lulled us into a dangerous complacency. We need to develop new techniques and technologies for infection control and commensurate vaccines across large populations. Cities, states, and regions must consistently prepare to protect their people from pandemics through stockpiling, cooperative planning, and exploration at the frontiers of science. 
Second, strive to heal the wounds to the world economy. Global leaders have learned important lessons from the 2008 financial crisis. The current economic crisis is more complex. The contraction unleashed by the coronavirus is, in its speed and global scale, unlike anything ever known in history. And necessary public health measures, such as social distancing and closing schools and businesses, are contributing to the economic pain. Programs should also seek to ameliorate the effects of impending chaos on the world's most vulnerable populations. Third, safeguard the principles of the liberal world order. The founding legend of modern government is a walled city protected by powerful rulers, sometimes despotic, other times benevolent, yet always strong enough to protect the people from an external enemy. Enlightenment thinkers reframed this concept, arguing that the purpose of the legitimate state is to provide for the fundamental needs of the people – security, order, economic well-being, and justice. Individuals cannot secure these things on their own. The pandemic has prompted an anachronism, a revival of the walled city in an age when prosperity depends on global trade and the movement of people. The world's democracies need to defend and sustain their enlightenment values. A global retreat from balancing power with legitimacy will cause the social contract to, to disintegrate both domestically and internationally. Yet, this millennial issue of legitimacy and power cannot be settled simultaneously with the effort to overcome the COVID-19 plague. Restraint is necessary on all sides, in both domestic politics and international diplomacy. Priorities must be established. We went on from the Battle of the Bulge into a world of growing prosperity and enhanced human dignity. Now we live in an epochal period. The historic challenge for leaders is to manage the crisis while building the future. Failure could set the world on fire. End quote. Well, there you have it. Heinz Kissinger certainly is not disheartened by what he's seeing, although, of course, it's a little bit of hand-wringing. Oh, can we, can we save the liberal world order? Well, here's my ideas. Let's go all the way with the new world order, which, again, is precisely the point of crises like this. The establishment status quo business as usual was never going to take us to the next stage of the development of this new world order, the corona world order. No, it takes a, a crisis to bring us to that point, and this is the crisis that they're going to push. Now, for what it's worth, I'll put it on record, Pat Buchanan is not convinced by this, and he has responded to Kissinger's editorial with uh, his own ar article, uh, Kissinger still pushing the myth of a happy new world order, and he says basically, well, poo-poo to Kissinger, he's just trying to keep to, uh, keep onto his dream, but we, we all see that it's failing. He doesn't really provide much substance. But I think what is happening here is there is a fundamental misunderstanding of what the globalist ideology is, what it is aiming at, what it is seeking to accomplish, what this new world order that globalists like Henry Kissinger are constantly talking about. And if that failure to understand what it is the globalists are actually trying to do means that we fail to understand when they are actually achieving their goals, when this is in fact a huge boon for their agenda, as it really stands, not the public face of the agenda. Because yes, the public face of the globalist agenda is just 
open borders and free trade with all and all of that kind of rhetoric that they use to describe what it is they want. But that has never, never, ever been what they actually want. People are viewing this from the controlled left-right political paradigm as if there's the liberal world order of the new world order globalists on the left and then there's the nationalists on the right and their opposed ideologies. When really... The, the issue that is being debated here is authoritarian top-down control versus individuals. And that is really the paradigm that is operative here. And you will see that both sides of the controlled left-right paradigm are all the way up on the authoritarian side of the spectrum. It's a national government has to take these precautions or an international government. But at any rate, it, we need a strong governmental uh, force to crack down on everyone. And when we start to understand what this agenda is really about, which is total and complete control over every aspect of every human being on the planet, their movement, their actions, their activities, their transactions, their interactions with people, down to the individual level, the complete and utter control of your life in every regard, well, guess what? That is being enabled on the back of this pandemic scare. So, the easiest and most obvious, most straightforward way of understanding that is to see, of course, the boon to the international organizations that deal with crises like this one, specifically in this case, since it is supposedly a medical emergency. It is the medical global institutions which are going to get a gigantic shot in the arm pun intended, with regards to this crisis. Of course, the WHO, but also Gavi and CEPI and Johns Hopkins and Bill and Melinda Gates and the World Economic Forum, which of course is also in that Event 201 mix. And if you don't know about Gavi and CEPI and organizations like this, then that speaks to an innocence which we all uh, partook in to some extent just a few, just those few short weeks ago, which was basically a lifetime ago, when we thought such organizations were not going to be central determinants in the future course of our lives. But now that they are, I will put some links in the show notes so you can start learning about some of these organizations and the way that they are going to use this to, of course, invade your body. Because your body is not yours in the event of a pandemic. Your body is the state's. Whether that's a national government or a global government, at any rate, the government gets to tell you what to do with your body and what you cannot do with your body, including where you can go and what you can or cannot or must or must not put into your body, like the vaccine, which we all know is coming. So I think that's quite obvious. I don't think that even needs any elaboration. That This is a gigantic boost to all of those globalist health institutions and as a knock-on, of course, all of the economic infrastructure and the World Bank and IMF that are, of course, being raised as part of the problem that has been generated by this crisis that has been generated by the governments that have shut down the global economy in order to deal with this medical emergency. Well, of course, as I've talked about and elaborated, this is an excuse for precipitating the economic crisis that has been baked into the cake for a very long time, which they are now going to blame on coronavirus when it actually has nothing to do with that. If you don't understand that, please see my recent conversation with John Titus where we talk about the lies of the Federal Reserve with regards to the coronavirus. But let's move on. Let's let's address one of the key points that Pat Buchanan and others of his ilk are making about this, namely that what this crisis shows is the, the flaw, 
the uh, faulty thinking in this open borders globalism crowd who just want people moving all around the, the globe and all of this and people just waltzing in and out of countries. No, 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 no. Now people understand we need to tighten down the borders. We need to close them off. And now we need to really... Oh, don't worry, guys. That's exactly what is going to happen because that is exactly what the globalist agenda has been all along. You're going to get your borders, but it's going to be not quite the borders you were thinking it was going to be. It's going to be a million times more difficult to travel between borders as a result of this crisis. And again, that is intentional because every human being on the planet is tax cattle for on the tax plantation, and you will be forced into your little patch of ground that you claim is your own, although you pay taxes on it, so you don't really actually even own it, but you will be forced into your little patch of ground, and anything you want to do outside of that patch of ground, you will need permission from the government. In case you think that I am joking, first let's look at the international travel situation. Uh, as propounded, for example, by Deutsche Bank, our good friends, the globalists at Deutsche Bank, who predict immunity passports for travel in COVID-19's wake. And we get this report uh, that says this week the World Health Organization said it expects the number of new coronavirus infections to rise over, over a million cases, blah, 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 pandemic outbreak, yada, 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 oh, we're all going to die. The COVID-19 outbreak may lead nations to create a new kind of immunity passport to try to ensure that travelers entering various countries are in a good state of health, a study by Germany's Deutsche Bank seen by Barron's magazine suggests. According to researchers, COVID-19 has shown just how quickly the world can change beyond recognition in a matter of weeks, and it won't be surprising if countries remain reluctant to open their borders even after the crisis abates without new tools. Deutsche Bank expects tourism to be the last industry to return to normal and says people from countries which cannot prove their good health somehow will most likely have to cancel their trips. Alternatively, proof of good health could come in the form of an immunity passport, a secure smartphone-based tool containing information about the user's well-being. And if this technology becomes available quickly enough, such immunity passports could promote tourism and travel. If not, the ban on travel could be replaced with mandatory periods of self-isolation upon arrival, researchers say. So don't worry, the Deutsche Bank researchers are telling you how international travel is going to work in the wake of this COVID-19 crisis or this ginned up scare. And it's going to involve immunity passports, smartphone-based immunity passports that'll say whether or not you're you're sick or suspected of being sick or have been in contact with someone in recent times who has later tested positive. But how would they know that? Oh, I guess they'd have to set up a system for tracking the movements of every single person on the planet, at least for a few weeks during the incubation period of this or any other virus that people might contract so that they could then go back and retroactively trace all of your travels and make sure you haven't come in contact with anyone who has had a disease. So how would they do that unless they were collecting all of the information on everybody who's moving around everywhere at all times? Oh wait, they are doing that. And yes, now they're coming out and admitting it on the ba basis of this coronavirus scare, of course, because again, this is the shot in the arm for every globalist agenda. So it is also a shot in the arm for the complete and total Orwellian surveillance of everything you do and everywhere you go, as evidenced by 
Articles like this one. The U.S. is tracking people's movements with phone data, and it's part of a massive increase in global surveillance. And it goes on to talk about governments across the world galvanizing every surveillance tool at their disposal to help stem the spread of the novel coronavirus. And they go through this report where they note, for example, the U.S. is reportedly gathering data from the ads industry to get an idea of where people are congregating. But we also know they're working with big tech in various ways, Google and other companies, in order to extract your location data in real time to understand where you are and where you're going and who you've interacted with. South Korea gives out detailed information about patients' whereabouts, and this report notes how people can go and check where various infected patients are moving on their uh, smartphone app and track the movements of other people. Uh, Iran asked citizens to download an invasive app um, tracking all of their movements. Uh, Israel passed new laws to spy on its own citizens, uh, which I covered here recently on the program. Uh, Singapore has an app which can trace people within two meters of infected patients. Taiwan can tell when quarantined people have left the house. Uh, Austria is using anonymized data to map people's movements. Poland is making people send selfies to prove that they're quarantining correctly. Belgium is using anonymized data from telcos. Germany is modeling how people are moving around. Italy has created movement maps. The UK isn't tracking yet, but is considering it. It is reportedly working on an opt-in contract uh, contact tracing app. And on that note, well, how is that going to work, an opt-in system? Who's going to bother to opt into a government-controlled app that's going to track everything you do and everywhere you go? Well, there may be a specific reason why you might have such an app. Namely, immunity passports could speed up return to work after COVID-19. And this case, uh, this report coming from The Guardian uh, about a week ago, this case, they're not talking about immunity passports to travel internationally. No, this is to go to work to access public transit, to do anything in the public sphere is going to require an immunity passport to show that you've either, you've got the antibodies or you've got the vaccine. If you've taken the vaccine, you'll get your immunity passport and you'll be allowed to travel, to work, to uh, make money in order to put food on your family's table. So it's completely opt-in, guys. You can choose if you want to do this. It's just if you want access to anything in the public sphere, you're going to have to take the shot. Hmm. So you see how this is starting to become a world not just of borders between nations, but borders within nations, internal checkpoints, and complete tracking and surveillance of everything you do, everywhere you go, everyone that you talk to, everything that you purchase, every moment of your life detailed and laid bare for these apps to track in order to make sure you're not spreading any diseases. Of course, it's for the public good. And if you think this sounds like nightmare dystopian science fiction that is still somewhere off in the distance, no, it is happening right now. In Hangzhou, to enter a tower block, you need to have your temperature taken and registered. And you must have an app on your phone into which you input your name, temperature, recent travel and ID number. The information generates a color code. In Hangzhou, to go out of the community or to public activities, you need to have a green code. This green, yellow or red code is automatically decided through the system. It uses big data to decide whether you've been to affected districts or come into contact with those people. But what if you're well and get a red code anyway? 
This man says he self-isolated while visiting Anhui province near Wuhan and back home in Shanghai. But there's no way to challenge the technology. Our office building here, you need to register. You need to show the code to demonstrate that you're healthy. So when I was read, there was no way I could go to the office and work. I didn't do anything. Then after two or three days, I looked and suddenly it was green. I don't know why, but I think that although it's not really reasonable, it is still a preventative measure. Yes, this is happening in the very model for the New World Order system, as described by Rockefeller and others, George Soros and others who have described China as the heart or the engine of the New World Order on numerous occasions, it is held up as the model because this is exactly what the globalists want to enact in every country around the globe, a complete authoritarian regime that has total control, total surveillance over every aspect of its citizens' lives. That is the end goal, as I've described in great detail in my work over and over and over. Most recently, in the recent edition of this podcast on Globalization is Dead, Long Live the New World Order, where I described, yes, China and these other boogeymen that have been erected by the globalists to be the boogeymen of the 21st century are, of course, not actually going against the globalist system. They are all in on the globalist system, and they are pioneering and spearheading the technologies of enslavement that are coming to us all, including now, based on this coronavirus scare, of course, the apps that are tracking and tracing every movement of every citizen and assigning them a color code, a social credit type score, green, yellow, or red. Can you enter this area or not? Can you leave your house or not? Let's ask the app. The app will tell us, and we don't really know how it's making this decision, but Anyway, if the government's doing it, it must be for the good. Because if I say anything other than that, I will be rounded up in the middle of the night. And they'll just say, oh, he had a red score on his QR code thing, and he tried to leave the house, so he had to take him away for his own good. You understand how this rolls. So, yes, I think a fundamental misunderstanding of the globalist agenda is behind some sort of mistaken idea, idea that this is the end of the New World Order. Absolutely nothing of the sort. No, this is the culmination of that new world order. This is what it's always been about. The, the open borders and everyone traveling, oh, look at all these migrants traveling all over. That was never more than a convenient means to an end. The end being the final proposed solution, which will be the complete tracking and tracing of everyone on the planet. Now, of course, the globalist class, the super gophers for the would-be elitists, certainly will have their special passes to travel anywhere they want at any time and meet with anyone and do anything. And they don't have to worry about social distancing or anything of that sort. But for the plebs, for the people at the bottom lung, or bottom rung, bottom lung, what an interesting Freudian slip in this era, bottom rung of the, uh, of the New World Order power pyramid, you better believe you do not get to travel freely. You will never get to travel freely again in your life. The borders are there. They're not international borders. They will be borders that will be drawn around your community as need be, and you will be trapped in by them unless you have your immunity passport and all of your social credit in good standing, of course. You are a good citizen, aren't you? And of course, every 
aspect of this just leads to more opportunities for more control over people's lives. Because how are you going to possibly keep track of every citizen's movements and all the people on the planet? I mean, they don't even have accurate senses of how many people actually exist in a given country. How are they going to possibly track everything and surveil and trace everything well as more and more slave devices get into the hands of more people hey you've got your smartphone with your government mandated tracking app right and of course this is all going to be tied into biometric details that are going to be combined into something that sounds fuzzy and feel good like a, a biometric uh, blockchain identity that will be on your smartphone that will be your passport at some point um, again not only for international travel, but of course they're going to roll it out that way. But again, in case you think this is all pie in the sky thinking, no, this was already a couple of years ago that our friends at the World Economic Forum, who let's not forget, helped host Event 201, were already talking about. In 2016, the travel industry recorded 1.2 billion international arrivals across the globe. By 2030, that number will skyrocket to a staggering 1.8 billion, a reality that's simply unsustainable with our current travel system. Introducing the Known Traveler Digital Identity, the first end-to-end -end intervention to streamline the entire travel experience by enhancing the ability of authorities to get the information they need when they need it so that they can move people swiftly across borders. Enabled through four technologies, not only will individuals have complete control over their own personal data, but authorities can remove friction through a series of simple and secure digital touch points. Here's how it works. First, travelers build their known traveler profile, scanning their passports to input biographical data, capturing their unique facial and fingerprint biometrics, and building in additional traveler information like driver's license numbers and credit card details. During airline bookings, travelers can seamlessly use their known traveler digital ID to autofill their reservations and even pay for their bookings. They can also share specific parts of their digital identity with country authorities to apply for travel authorizations such as visas or for advanced immigration and security pre-clearance, all before they've even packed their bags. Once a government authority approves a visa application or allows a border crossing, they will add an entry to a secure blockchain and provide the traveller with a digital stamp in their digital identity wallet. Whether travellers need a visa or not, sharing their known traveller profile with authorities in advance means on the day of departure travellers can speed past the traditional immigration controls. At the airport, travellers can leverage their biometric verification across all touchpoints, from the baggage counter to the departure gate. And thanks to pre-screening, government authorities can utilise temporarily stored biometric and biographic information to quickly guide travellers to the appropriate lanes based on their pre-assigned risk level and the digital stamps in the traveller's identity wallet. In the traveller's personal data store, verified digital stamps prove to customs and border officials that other national authorities have verified the identity of the traveller. Using this trusted information, officials can effectively and efficiently assess passengers' entry details, ultimately creating shorter lines, reducing costs and carving out more time to identify and mitigate any real risks. The known traveller digital identity also links with private companies, providing opportunities to facilitate entire itineraries from catching an airport shuttle to unlocking a hotel room with a fingerprint. Through an advanced multi-device mobile interface, unparalleled biometrics and an impenetrable blockchain, the system also learns with time. 
The more approved digital verification stamps a traveller acquires, the more credibility that individual will have on their next journey. Endless lines and excessive documents belong in the past. Yes, in this age of pandemic panic and the resulting digital identity solutions that we're going to need in order to manage and track the, the movements of every citizen on the planet, uh, I've seen a lot of people raising in that connection the ID2020 specter and the digital ID movement that is being sponsored by Microsoft and Gavi and Accenture, um, which certainly does deserve your attention, but I've seen a lot of people talking about that. What I have not seen people talking about is the World Economic Forum's known traveler digital identity, and we have an update on that from just about a week ago uh, from Activist Post, where Edward Hasbrook has an article, World Economic Forum Ramps Up Known Traveler Digital Identity, noting that on March 26, the WEF, the World Economic Forum, published specifications and launched a new project website for a project uh, it has christened Known Traveler Digital Identity. KTDI is a surveillance by design vision for tracking and control of travelers more dystopian than anything we've seen before. KDTI would use a blockchain-based distributed ledger. Uh, so it's Bitcoin? Oh, I guess it must be a cryptocurrency. <laughs> it's all the same, right? <laughs> to bind together through an app or a traveler's mobile device all of the following data. Biometrics, initially facial images, possibly also fingerprints, etc. Government-issued ID credentials, passport number, etc. Travel history, including logs of border crossings, hotel stays, and possibly also car rentals and or other events. Purchase logs and possibly bank account information. Well, you're going to have to pay with it as well, right? And or other financial and transaction records. Pre-crime predictive risk assessment and profiling scores generated at each intervention point before and during each trip or transaction. Each hotel stay, purchase, or other transaction would become like a border crossing, permanently stamped in your passport as part of a digital trip pass, subject to inspection on demand by authorities at subsequent intervention points, which, note, are not necessarily international borders, but whatever checkpoints are set up at any time there's any sort of pandemic panic from, from now for the rest of your natural life. All of this data is intended to be used to discriminate between travelers whose ID-linked pre-crime profiles are scored as high-risk or low-risk. And make no mistake about that, that, that is exactly what this is. This is essentially pre-crime of some sort uh, that will be used and, of course, abused by authorities to uh, against anyone that they want at any time. Oh, our, our secret algorithm says that you've been in contact with someone who has tested positive for something, so you're going to have to quarantine. Oh, we're just going to have to throw you in a in a confined room, but don't worry, you're not under arrest, but you cannot leave your room, and we will have literal drones policing and patrolling the skies to make sure that people are abiding by their quarantines, and literal robots on the streets to enforce these quarantines. None of this is being made up. Of course you know about the drones that are being deployed by police forces all over the world now to help enforce these quarantines and lockdown orders, but maybe you haven't seen the, the robot in Tunisia that is now helping to police the streets during these lockdown and curfew orders. Orders. 
and of course, this will be tied into your known traveler digital identity, which will include all of this information, including your financial information, because of course, this also all ties into the economic control grid, which as we talked about in the previous edition of this podcast, episode 374 on the greatest depression, this is all going to be tied to uh, your bank account, ultimately, which of course will be a digital dollars account that will be tied to your Federal Reserve Bank, member bank, uh, through which the Fed will be able to deposit your UBI, dot, 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 assuming that you have the proper credit, social credit score criteria met and that you've taken your shots and all of that. I mean, every aspect of this agenda links together and it is absolutely in every way pedal to the metal 100%, 200%, the globalist agenda. Check, check, check complete and total lockdown of all of your economic activity based on your ability to transact with other people, check. Your complete lockdown of your physical movements and interactions, uh, down to not just the international border level, but internal borders, wherever and whenever they get erected, check. Your ability to function on this planet, your ability to decide whether or not you will take a vaccine to be completely eradicated and put in the uh, control of a completely unaccountable global institution that now has control over your body, check. Absolutely everything the globalists want, which is control over every activity, every transaction, every interaction that you ever have is getting a gigantic boost as a result of this generated crisis. So that's the position that we find ourselves in. Quite the contrary of those who are arguing that this is, oh, the end of the New World Order. Oh, yeah, they're, they're never going to be able to recover from this. I cannot fathom how anyone could believe that. This is everything that the globalists want. And they are moving on every front simultaneously. So once we identify the real problem which is centralization of power in the hands of fewer and fewer, the centralization of power and authority, the centralization of control, the centralization of information about you and your life in the hands of these uh, big data companies that will, of course, be cooperating with the governments around the world that are will cooperating with each other in this unified system. Centralization of power, centralization of control, centralization of information. The only alternative, the only way to counteract this uh, this agenda is through its exact opposite, decentralization. This is, of course, not news to anyone who has been following my work in the last several years, where I've talked at length and repeatedly about decentralization, decentralization of political power, decentralization of economic power, decentralization of food production and energy production and every other form of decentralization that is even conceivable has to be pursued in every way possible. And the way that that is accomplished is through counter-economics. And I know that is a new term for some people. If so, I would suggest that you look back through my archives on my discussions about agorism and counter-economics in the context of Samuel E. Konkin III. I will put a link into SEK3's work on this subject of counter-economics for those who are encountering it for the first time. But this is the idea that you will have to participate in gray or even black markets if you are going to be a bad citizen of this new global order, because you are going to be put in a position 
It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but it is coming. You will be put in a position where you will be forced to do X, Y, or Z, or not to do X, Y, or Z in order to maintain your position in the economy and to lawfully and legally transact with others with your digital dollars wallet. If you do not engage in counter-economic activity, activity that is not only not sanctioned by the state, but in some cases explicitly forbidden by the state, and if you do not expand the networks that will be necessary to facilitate those types of actions, right now, you certainly will not have them further down the road when you desperately need them in order to feed yourself and your family. This is not a joke. This is not a drill. This is not a test. This is the game for all the marbles. It is happening now. And there are pockets of resistance and people who are at least putting together the types of communities that will be necessary to fight this in the future and to create these spaces for counter-economic activity that is the only possible hope here, although it is admittedly a slim hope at this point, but it is the only way to counteract this agenda. So, having said that, you may want to turn to my recent conversation with Derek Bros of the Conscious Resistance Network at theconsciousresistance.com, where we talked at length about this idea of counter-economic activity and the formation of freedom cells and community organizations to try to form the counter-economic communities that will be the only pockets of resistance to this agenda. As you say, this is a global agenda. It is coming globally. It just might take a little bit longer to reach certain places than others, um, but it is coming. And that's really the point of what we want to drive home today is, well, okay, so what are we going to do about it? And uh, of course, this is uh, touching on all of the conversations we've had in the past recently, but of course, touching on your recent work about the uh, formation of the counter-economic underground railroad and the growing of the Agora, which sounds like gibberish and gobbledygook to a lot of people who haven't heard our previous conversations. So let's reintroduce people to these concepts and what it is that you're attempting to do there. Yeah, absolutely. So um, again, for anybody who's just saw the book James is holding, you can download it for free at consciousresistance.com slash how-to. I think most um, relative to this conversation and to our time right now is part two of the book, which deals with, as you said, James, the counter-economic underground railroad, or simply the modern underground railroad. And uh, what I describe in the book, it was more specifically related to the technocracy, and we're seeing the technocracy advance in re uh, response to this pandemic, panic, whatever you want to call it. They're propelling you know, 5G forward, they're pushing uh, CDC surveillance powers and all this kind of stuff we all know about. Um, so we knew this thing was coming. I didn't know a pandemic was going to help speed it up, but I definitely felt that it was right behind us. And in the U.S., for those who haven't been paying attention, within the next year, you are already going to have to submit to facial recognition in order to fly domestically. I mean, this is these are realities are becoming, um, you know, normal uh, increasingly every day. So, what do we do about it? Well, for me, the idea. Uh, the ultimate reality, I think, is banding together in communities, whether that means your family, your immediate family, your you know larger family or groups of families or groups of activists. What we talk, we're going to talk about today, freedom cells, hubs, circles, whatever. I think that coming together is the only solution because um, what we see is the mainstream dominant society is pushing the technocracy. It's pushing the normalization of biometrics, the pushing the normalization of uh, digital certificates to travel, you know, to prove your immunity. The UK just recently talked about having immunity passports and these kinds of ideas. These are going to happen. They might not happen after this pandemic, but obviously the, the ideas are being floated. It's going to happen. Like all the things that we've been theorizing, writing, talking about, it's here. It's very, very close. 
And what the book was trying to do is to get people to think very practically, what are you going to do? Don't think abstractly about this, but when you are told in your community, in order to travel, you need this piece of paper. In order for your family to get this loan or get this house or for you to apply for this new job or for your kids to go to school or for you to use public transportation, we need you to submit to biometrics or to uh, this passport or this wristband or this QR code or whatever it's going to be. It might be different different places until it becomes unified. You're going to have a decision. You either comply, go along with it because you're afraid or because that's just the best you can think of, or you're going to have to break the law. I mean, and that's you know, good people disobey bad laws, Well, we're going to be coming to a place where that's going to be more clear than ever. And there's also people who are very concerned about uh, mandatory vaccinations and things of that sort becoming more normalized. You know, you have to think about this in practical terms. What are you going to do to protect you and your family um, other than just complying? I'm not invoking violence in any way at all, but I'm simply saying if we don't think ahead and, and think about how to opt out of these systems and how do we make that work? Well, then we're going to end up in a very difficult situation and probably won't have any other recourse other than submitting or perhaps reacting violently. But if we use the bit of a window that we have right now, we start coming together in these decentralized groups and as individuals and as families and communities and having this conversation like, so, you know, family, how, how would we handle this situation? You know, whether it's spouse to spouse or family altogether, like what are we going to do if they tell us that our kids have to be vaccinated in order for them to anywhere in order you know in china they said their social credit system is designed to make it where antisocial people can't even leave the house eventually you know they want to completely stop people's ability to, to to survive so the only way forward through that is to take those who are choosing to opt out and to come together and what i envisioned and unfortunately i think it's it's already happening is um much like during the civil war in the u.s where people escaped to Canada, and some people did indeed escape to Mexico using this decentralized network of safe houses and safe spaces that has become known as the Underground Railroad. Obviously, Harriet Tubman and others played a big role in that. That that idea is going to be necessary, and it indeed has been necessary throughout history as people have tried to escape tyranny. You can look to China, you can look to North Korea, you can look to any time the governments try to become tyrannical, people will find a way out. They'll look for funneling supplies and goods in, as well as people out. And so I tried to think about that in really practical terms. And in the book, I say as much as like, I have no idea how this is going to form necessarily, but this is the role that I will be involved in. I want to help make sure that the people who are trying to opt out of this system that's coming into view now, and maybe those who haven't made preparations can have some form of support. So in a large way, that's why I came to Mexico. And I mean, I, I was saying to you, James, I've got hundreds of emails in my inbox that I just haven't been able to catch up with. Uh, specifically re related to this, people who not only asking questions about everything going on, but like, how do I help my family? Hey, I'm you know we got two kids, and what are the rules to getting over there? And just people are starting to, to rethink their entire lives everywhere from Romania to Germany. I mean, and anybody, if you're hearing this, I'm trying to get back to all the emails. I want to help everybody as much as I can. I'll also admit it's a bit overwhelming um, to know that I can't help everybody, and I'm just not in a position to. But the whole goal is to whether that means from the U.S. to Mexico or if you're in the U.K. listening and somewhere near you is a little safer than being in London, you know, in establishing these safe space for people who are trying to get out and get away to places that might be less restrictive, might be more free and coming together as free people. Because, I mean, if we stay separated and spread throughout the world and taking on these tyrannies alone, I mean, it's I don't see very much coming much good coming out of that. There's only so much we can do. And, James, as you know, I mean, uh, 
people in our circles are being demonetized every day and being taken down from these platforms. And the masses don't apparently want to go to BitChute and go to the other places or visit our website. So sooner or later, as far as they're concerned, we're going to disappear. And um, we will not be reaching the hundreds of thousands or millions of people. And it'll be very, very difficult. So... Um, yeah, so the, the Underground Railroad is basically my attempt, the, the counter-economic Underground Railroad, and, and that term, counter-economic, for those who haven't seen our previous conversations, it essentially just means the, the economy, the mainstream economy, the status economy is that, um, you know, taxable, they keep track of your income, all that sort of mainstream, you're paying taxes and all that. The counter-economy is the economy that opposes that, is outside of that, the informal economy, the black market, the gray market. And Samuel Konkin, who put these ideas forward, he was mainly focused on economics. But I also think that we should start thinking in terms of the food production system, the healthcare system, all the systems that have become under control of this technocracy of these corporate and governmental elite. We need to think of how we survive without those systems. And so the counter-economy is about opting out of that. And so that's why I call it the counter-economic underground railroad, because the idea is unplugging people from those systems, helping them escape from the technocratic state, and hopefully to build something better and to you know, start, whether that means people just join a neighborhood together or there's people out here who are looking for land and, and a lot of exciting projects um, that are unfortunately coming about because of a very dangerous situation. Once again, that is Derek Bros of The Conscious Resistance. The links to his website and his work will be in the show notes for this episode of the podcast. And I'm not going to soft soap you on this one. We are facing an uphill battle, to say the least. There is absolutely no guarantee that victory will occur in this battle against the forces that are seeking to control every aspect of your life. In fact, it is almost guaranteed that things are going to get much, much worse before they can ever possibly hope to get better. And that is a frightening prospect considering how bad things already are with over half of humanity now on some form of lockdown, curfew, social isolation, self-quarantine, order, or request. Things are getting serious. I don't know if you've noticed, but things are getting very very serious. And contrary to those who are arguing that this is the end of the New World Order, oh, they, 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 that's over. That'll never happen. No, this is the fulfillment of the globalists' plans for decades or generations, really. So if you are just finding out about this, if you have in the past dismissed concerns about the growing, encroaching technocratic totalitarian surveillance and control over every aspect of your life and are now realizing how deep we are in this situation, then you find yourself in the position of the grasshopper in the story of the ant and the grasshopper, which is not a good position to be in. You are underprepared for an event that is already starting to take place. So you have a lot of catching up to do. In fact, we all do. We are behind on this game because there are exceptionally, not just well-funded, not just well-funded interests, but interests that literally create the money, have control of the money supply itself, who have been working for generations, if not centuries, on this plan to ensnare humanity. And the trap has been set. The bait is already in the trap. The trap is already starting to spring. Can we move out of the way in time? It is absolutely not assured. But I can assure you of one thing. If we do not understand what is happening at this point, to realize that this is about authoritarian, totalitarian, collectivist control over all of humanity, 
If we don't understand that that is the problem that we are facing, then how can we ever possibly understand the real solutions? So I've laid a lot out on the table today. There's a lot to explore. I hope you will use the show notes to explore some of the issues that I'm talking about because I hope you understand the gravity of the situation that we are facing. This is the game for all the marbles and it is being played right now. Are you a player or are you just going to watch from the sidelines? Because if you are, you are definitely not going to win the game. On that note, I'm going to leave things there for today. Uh, I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. I hope you'll stay tuned at The Corbett Report for consistent and ongoing coverage of these issues. I'm looking forward to talking to you again in the near future.